we have to need this band. We have to need it more than the listener might need it. And then someone else can feel that and then they'll need it too. That's the conversation that we want to be in with our fans. But that conversation has to start with us. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think throughout the 30 years that we've been writing songs, we've shared some of our deepest joys and sorrows in the songs. You know, we've told our story. And I found that to be incredibly important. And especially at this age, especially with what's happened in our country and how women's rights, we've taken a step back in some ways with that. I felt like when I really thought about it, you know, the idea of our band and what it means to us, just the two of us is really important. And so I think we're more protective of that than we ever have been. That was Slater Kinney. And this is Shiro's, a podcast with a mission to turn up the volume of women's voices in music across genres and generations. Shiro's is a deep dive into the experiences and perspectives of women and gender expansive folks in a still overwhelmingly male dominated music industry. It's a space where we discuss challenges and triumphs, how far we've come and how far we still have to go. Telling our stories is the first step to making music better for everyone. I'm Carmel Holt. I am so excited to bring you a conversation this week with two Shiro's of Shiro's, Carrie Brownstein and Corin Tucker, the co-founders and leaders of one of the most influential indie rock bands of the last three decades, Slater Kinney. Born out of the Riot Girl and punk scene in the Pacific Northwest, Carrie and Corin formed Slater Kinney in Olympia, Washington in 1994, first as a side project outside of their respective bands, Heavens to Betsy and Excuse 7. On a trip to Australia, they recorded their self-titled debut album as a trio with Laura McFarlane on drums and released it on queercore label Chainsaw Records in 1995. By their second release, called The Doctor, in 1996, Slater Kinney was gaining critical acclaim and was a side project no more. The following year, Dig Me Out became Slater Kinney's Kill Rock Stars debut and saw the addition of drummer Janet Weiss, who would be the longest-term drummer for the band so far. Across their first decade and seven albums, Slater Kinney became instant legends and hugely influential. Their sound, their progressive political, feminist, as well as personal lyrics were rebellious, brave, and inspiring. Then, following their tour in support of their 2005 seventh album, The Woods, Slater Kinney announced an indefinite hiatus in 2006. During the years that followed, Corin formed a solo project and released two albums as the Corin Tucker Band. Carrie formed a band called Wild Flag and released an album. And in 2011, she began her television series with Fred Armisen, Portlandia, which ran for eight seasons through 2018. Finally, the day we all hoped would come arrived in 2014. Slater Kinney announced their return with No Cities to Love, which came out in 2015, followed by a live album in 2017. The Center Won't Hold followed in 2019 and was produced by another Shiro, St. Vincent. This would be the final album with Janet Weiss. Carrie and Corin self-produced their next album, Path of Wellness, which arrived in 2021. And now Slater Kinney is back with their incredible 11th album, Little Rope, which saw songs already written and in progress 
process of being recorded, find a new level of urgency and emotional depth following the sudden death of Carrie's mother and stepfather in a car accident. The result is an album that resonates on every level and sonically reaches new heights. Carrie's guitar work, Corin's voice, the dynamic range of sound, it all delivers with intensity and joy as only Slater Kenny can. It's an honor to welcome Carrie Brownstein and Corin Tucker as this week's Sheroes in the Spotlight. Carrie Brownstein, Corin Tucker, Slater Kenny's here on Sheroes. Welcome, you guys. Thank you so much for having us. Yes, thank you. I am so thrilled to have you here. Congratulations on Little Rope. A lot of times we do these interviews in the weeks and months prior, but I love the opportunity to talk to artists after the album has been sent out into the world because it gives you a minute to process and to feel that reciprocation from your fans. So I wanted to check in with the two of you and see how it feels post-release. Yeah, I think it feels really celebratory for this record. You know, we've gotten a lot of really great feedback from both longtime listeners and brand new fans, which is wild. We've done two in-store record signings that were just so meaningful in terms of actually talking to people face-to-face, hearing them tell us, you know, this record means a lot to me, your music means a lot to me. Like that kind of personal connection is really what it's all about. It's why you make music in the first place. So I think we are feeling the love from people. Do you still get butterflies? Do you still have any feelings of nervousness before unleashing a new project? And this one in particular? I think, of course, there's always a little bit of trepidation right before it comes out. There's sort of no going back, but that's okay. You know, that just means that we've put something vulnerable and raw and honest onto tape. And we know that you know, that sets you up for, yeah, feeling a little bit exposed, I think. But we felt that with every record. I think it would be dishonest to say that we've just coasted into any album release without some modicum of nerves. You want those nerves. You know, you want to feel like you put something on the line, that there's something at stake there. And despite what you might say or protest, oh, I don't, we don't care what other people think. Of course, you hope that the music finds people, that it means something to them, that it matters, that they listen. So there's no denying that kind of last minute sense of fear. This is a particularly tender and raw album. Can you talk to us a little bit about where this album started and where it ended up? Sure. Well, we started writing Little Rope way back in 2021, we were coming out of the insularity and sense of isolation that I think we collectively felt from the pandemic. And the initial songs had a restlessness to them. They seemed extroverted. We wanted volume. We wanted chaos, all the elements of Slater Kinney that I think we returned to, especially after we felt moments of contemplation or quiet. And so something like Untidy Creature was one of the first songs. It has this very classic way of writing for Corin and myself, which is a big riff and then 
even bigger vocals. Needlessly Wild, which happens to be the second song on the album, was also there, you know, just kind of fidgety, sort of corrosive feelings. And then we had recorded a handful of songs. We were halfway through writing. And then, uh, yeah, I, I lost two family members in an accident. And that really changed everything for me, obviously. But we continued to write the record. And I found myself turning to music and to the band as a way of finding stability during a time that was very destabilizing. I felt like the scaffolding of my life had been kind of destroyed. And Slater-Kinney was a structure and a steadiness that I knew that I could count on. It provided me with a ritual and a routine and the songs kind of took care of me. And in turn, I took care of them, kind of tended to them and nurtured them and the way that Corin and I approached them with deliberation and really wanting to see them through just felt like a form of meditation or prayer or just certainly tenderness, I think. So yeah, the, the whole album kind of was brought into this nascent, very stormy, uncertain landscape. But I wouldn't call it a grief album. It feels just like an album that in some ways celebrates life, but it certainly has been through the ringer. Corin, how did you experience working on these songs in the wake of Carrie's personal tragedy? I have read the story. It's so heartbreaking. You were the one that received the phone call and your friendship goes back so far. I mean, your family at this point, right? How did you experience working with these songs in this new framework? Yeah, well, I think that Carrie's metaphor of a storm is a really great one for understanding mm. how it felt. I mean, you know, we were already working on some of the songs. We already had some ideas, but the emotional quality of it was suddenly there was just a sense of urgency, of instability, of, you know, great loss and you know, it just, it turned everything around in a different way. It changed the way I wanted to sing. It changed the way my voice sounded. It changed the way some of the songs needed to sort of rise to the occasion. As weird as that sounds, you know, there was a, just sort of like a, a middle ground that I think some of the songs were occupying that no longer applied to this album. It was so obvious when we started working on certain songs, it didn't have the emotional quality that other things did. And that idea of, of a storm and operating inside of this great sort of emotional storm, I think is the best metaphor that I have for it. Because certain songs like Hell just took on this like epic quality because of what had happened. Not that the song was written about that, but there is an emotional hell you experience when you lose someone that's very close to you. And so it just echoed throughout the album, this idea of loss, this idea of duality, of light and dark, of life and joy, and the great pleasure that we experience from loving people and the reality that we will part with them at some point. Like all of that sort of colored the album while we were making it. 
The album is bookended by those two tracks. And I love that you put the first song that you wrote, Untidy Creatures, at the end and Hell at the beginning. I was hoping that we could pick one of the songs to hear a little bit of. Yeah, I mean, I think Hell is a great one to start with. The reason we picked it to start the album is because we were experiencing this very intense emotional situation and we wanted to drop the listener inside of a story. And, you know, the idea of hell in this story is this idea that we can kind of normalize any situation as human beings. We can kind of get used to living any kind of reality. And I think the kind of violence that we experience in the United States, especially gun violence, is something that we now we've gotten used to it. Oh, another shooting, you know, and the idea is that if you let go of normalizing that, what does that do to our emotionality? There's a moment in the song that wakes up to just the absolute terror of that in the chorus. And then, you know, the verse sort of plays with that idea and toys with it a little bit and questions how human beings deal with this idea of violence, of treating people the way that we do. And so I think we wanted to drop people into this sort of emotional story, this emotional storm that we were sort of talking about and let them know like, we're going on a ride here. And this is kind of the beginning of that story. one on the new Slater Kinney album, Little Rope. I have Slater Kinney with me, Carrie Brownstein and Corin Tucker. And track one is Hell. So we were talking before about how a lot of these songs were written prior to the personal tragedy that Carrie went through losing her mom and stepfather in the car accident. Songs that were already written ended up getting reworked and needed to measure up to the emotional landscape that you were now in. Was Hell one of those songs? And how did it transform? Hell, I would say, already was Hell when Corin sent me the demo version of it. So that one, it was just a matter of tone and the temperature, the tenor of the song. Mm -hmm. So creating that contrast 
became very important between verse and chorus there. So the verse, there's a tranquil quality to it, almost a sense of acquiescence or passivity, mm. you know, these kind mm. of tossed off ideas about hell over, you know, there's no drums, there's a kind of a sonic landscape that's eerie and it starts to build. And then when the chorus comes in, my guitar has some harmonizers on it and it just comes crashing in, the drums come in. So it was, it was less about, you know, the content of the song, but creating a sonic palette that would yeah. be jarring. And that is the contrast. Those are the oppositional forces on the album. They all exist in that song between verse and chorus. You know, you settle into something, you become accustomed to this faith that we have every day that yeah. things will be okay, that progress is inevitable. And then we go careening into something that tells us the opposite is actually true, that we have no control over anything, that our fears and our anxieties are just as likely <laughs> as the opposite, you know, and that despair and, and suffering are apt to find us. And of course, we will find the other side of that and the chorus resets and it goes back to the lull. So, you know, I think it would be too contrived to just say like, okay, well, now we have to make this album about this. It just was about setting up a cohesive narrative. And, you know, John Congleton, our producer, was also instrumental in helping to make the world immersive and coalesce. When I heard that you had worked with John Congleton on this album, I got super excited. I've loved his work. I'm just going to come out and say it. He's, to me, a rare breed of male producer that does an incredible job of working with women. I've just heard nothing but good things. And I was definitely going to ask you about your own experience, how you know John, and how he helped you usher this album into sonically where you wanted it to go. Yeah, John is someone that we've known for a long time because he comes from kind of the same music scene that we came from. He was in a band called Paper Chase that was on Kill Rock Stars. And we've talked to him over the years and tried to find a time to work together. And we were just fortunate that this actually worked out. You know, the stars aligned. And, you know, I think... For me, as a singer working with John, I really felt like he knew my voice going into it. He knew my voice and what he thought I was capable of before we started working together. And because of that, he definitely pushed me. He definitely acted like a vocal coach in the studio. And, you know, he was supportive. He would coach me through things. And he's also kind of blunt, you know, like, to kind of go back to talking about the emotionality of the album, when I first started singing one of the songs, Say It Like You Mean It, you know, he was like, I don't think this is it for the vocal performance. I don't think we're there yet. I think we're missing the drama that I've heard in some of the other songs like Hal. And I think we'd maybe done a couple other songs, but, you know, he's he's like, I don't think this is there yet. And, you know, it was it definitely like stumped me for a minute to kind of rethink what I was doing, but I did go home that night and I rewrote the vocal melody for the song because it needed to find that same emotional landscape that we were in. It was very heightened. It was very dramatic. And so once I came in and started singing the song from a quieter melody starting point for Say It Like You Mean It, then 
when I went to these just bigger places in the chorus, he's like, that's it. That's it. You know, like, and he's got this crazy Texas accent. So he's like, give it some gas, mama. He's a wild card. He's got a really funny personality. So it was fun. You know, we worked really hard, but it was also really fun to work with him as well. Do you have any thoughts about men producers versus women producers? You've now had both experiences and you've self-produced. We talk a lot on this show about the lack of not just equality in the industry, but specifically in tech. Uh, Any thoughts or experiences directly in the differences of working with women versus men or whether or not you think that we need to do some work there in terms of getting more women behind the desk? I mean, I think in terms of our experience, we're in a unique position where we've always been an all-female band. So we're usually looking for balance, to be honest. (laughs) That makes sense. Yeah. We don't necessarily (laughs) need, you know, another woman in the room. More estrogen in the room. Yeah. Yeah. And again, (laughs) nothing breaks down into, you know, essentialist ideas. But for us, it's really just about a partnership who understands the strengths of this band, who is interested in innovation, but also protecting what's essential about the band, Uh, who will push us, who will we trust to push us, who has taste. To me, that does not break down by gender. That's about communication. That's about compassion. That's about someone who allows us a certain kind of vulnerability that if you are not able to reach in the studio, then you're in real trouble. So I think in terms of that, we are just looking for a good collaborator. For sure, I would love to see more women and non-binary people get behind those consoles, whether they're the producer, the engineer, the assistant, doing the mastering. That stuff is really important because I think everyone's definition of what feels safe in a studio or what allows them to be their best self is different. So you want all those options available. When you're looking for a good producer or engineer, you don't want to just be looking down a list of, you know, white guys in their fifties, right? Like some of those white guys in their fifties are the best out there, you know, are some of the, among the best, Yeah. but there should just be options, I think. And, you know, we're always looking for that kind of parity and equality, you know, so people can do their best work. Yeah. And I would just, I would just say that I think in terms of working with St. Vincent, who you brought up, like that was such an awesome experience. And she is such an alternative thinker. I think in terms of what do we do with this song? Where are we going with this? Let's try this. Like she's so experimental. It was such a cool experience. And, you know, we're always looking for that with anyone that we work with is a collaborator, like Carrie said, that can sort of push the envelope and bring something new to the table. And St. Vincent absolutely did that with Center Won't Hold and had us try a bunch of different things that were completely spontaneous, you know? And so I loved that about working with her. And I do, I agree. It's like, we need to just encourage diversity 
within the tech world so that there are all those other options out there and that it becomes more commonplace to have female producers, non-binary producers, engineers, all of it. Totally agree. I've been hearing you talk a lot in interviews on this album about recommitment to each other, to the band. And I was hoping to just spend a few minutes talking about the use of that word, what that means to you and why it applies here. Uh, I'm just laughing because I feel like when you do a series of interviews for an album cycle, yeah. you just start using the same words. I'm like, huh. I know. Well, what else what else could <laughs> but, we have said besides recommitment? Here they go again. They're recommitting. I'm recommitting no. to this word right now. Sorry. sorry. <laughs> totally. The reason why I say it is because when I hear that, I'm like, okay, so this is like thematically really important here. And my thing is like, I always want to peel the layer back a little bit deeper to say, okay, so let's talk about that. Like, what does that mean to you? And why has that been coming up a lot? I think... You know, we have been a band now for nearly 30 years. And when you start a band in your late teens, essentially, there's not a ton of deliberation. Uh, you're not necessarily looking too far into the future. Maybe you're imagining the next six months, maybe the next year. You're definitely not thinking that this entity, you know, this friendship, this dynamic this vessel that is your band is going to carry you and vice versa for the next decades, you know, the next for us 30 years. So I think with anything, after a while, there has to be deliberation. It's not something that you can take for granted or not nurture or pay attention to or work on. You know, we have to come at it with ideas and focus and love. And when you start out, you don't think like, oh, communication, that's going to be important. You're just thinking, no, what are these shoes, the best shoes for stage? Do I have the best looking guitar strap? Is my hair okay? You know, like just these, like, what's the album cover look like? And if you're lucky with anything, you get to re-examine. You get to both mm -hmm. examine and re-examine and reconsider and recommit, to use that word. And I do think like a romantic partnership, you kind of have to wake up and choose every day. I choose this. It's not accidental. It's not going to keep going if you decide to not choose it. If you leave it, if you detach from it, it doesn't necessarily exist. And I think with a creative partnership, we do have to want it. There has to be a desire there has to be a reason for it. And that's what we're talking about, is that we have to need this band. We have to need it more than the listener might need it. In order to ask someone to listen to our record, we have to want it. You know, we have to need it first. And then someone else can feel that. And then they'll need it too. That's the conversation that we want to be in with our fans. But that conversation has to start with us. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, I would almost use a word like a leap of faith. When you are in something that's a band, a creative endeavor, something that is, you know, it's not a regular job. It's not a regular lifestyle. It asks a lot more of you, especially as a parent, as someone who has a partner in life as someone who has a dog, you know, anything. It takes a lot away from that 
what is it given in return? And I think coming at that with, you know, being older in our lives and having more complicated lives, I think, you know, this idea of reconsideration of what does this writing mean to me? What about my life am I sharing? And what do I hope to get out of that? And not just from this album, but throughout the 30 years that we've been writing songs, I think we've shared some of our deepest joys and sorrows in the songs. You know, we've told our story and I found that to be incredibly important. And especially at this age, especially with what's happened in our country and how women's rights, we've taken a step back in some ways with that. I felt like when I really thought about it, you know, the idea of our band and what it means to us, just the two of us is really important. And so I think we're more protective of that than we ever have been. I'm so glad you brought that up because I've heard you talk about women's rights in the context of Little Rope and some of the songs here and me being me and this being Shiro's. I'm like, can we please talk about that a little bit more and spend some time on this very important topic, why it's important to you? I think Untidy Creature is a song that was really shaped by the past couple of years in the United States. So it's the song that we wrote at the end of 2021. We had the idea of the song, we had the melody of the song, but we didn't have the lyrics. And so I could feel that the idea of the song was one about a relationship, you know? And I think the sense of outrage I had in 2022 when Roe vs. Wade was overturned, the sense of betrayal and the fear, not necessarily for myself, but for my daughter. I have a, like a 15-year-old daughter, just that primal anxiety and, you know, just like a rethinking of how women were sort of seen in our country. It like came out in the story that I was writing for this song. You know, it came out and it is the idea of a personal relationship and feeling trapped and not seen and not heard. But it's also reflecting a mirror of women not being able to make their own decisions about their own health care. And a sense of outrage that that decision happened overnight and affected some women's lives so dramatically. So, I, you know, I think that was a way that that sense of outrage kind of seeped into the writing of this record and the writing of that song. You build 
Closes Little Rope, the 11th album from Slater Kinney, Untidy Creature. I have Carrie Brownstein and Corin Tucker here with us on Shiro's, and I'm Carmel Holt. We were talking about the overturning of Roe v. Wade and how that fed into this song. Slater Kinney has been said with reverence in the same breath as feminism for as long as you've existed. I was hoping that we could spend a little bit of time talking about that and talking about feminist themes in your music and your own personal relationship. I know I have a little bit of a complicated relationship with feminism in all its waves and where we are now with it. So, I don't know, open floor, like... What do you think about maybe first where we are in feminism and then in terms of Slater-Kinney? I mean, I I hesitate to make any big statements about where feminism is at. It feels impossible to sort of nail that down. And, you know, of course, I'm only one perspective and it's such a subjective one. What I'm grateful for, of course, is the furthering of intersectionality, you know, taking into consideration race, class, ability, you know, just having a conversation that's more nuanced and just the idea of plurality and and letting these things coexist and be complicated and try to find a path forward, you know, where the high tide lifts all boats. And instead of, you know, centering oneself, you know, the conversation I think has gotten both more complex in a good way and then more complex, I think, in ways that are stifling as well. But for the most part, I'm very grateful that there are more voices being heard and that the face of feminism is no longer homogenous and that it's more about, I think, dismantling systems of oppression and sort of questioning hierarchical structures and the way that capitalism kind of feeds all of those harmful beasts and how it hurts everyone. I think the ways that feminism intersects with all of those methods and ideologies that aim to make people freer and more autonomous is great. And, you know, in terms of Slater-Kinney, I just think, you know, we started out in the mid-90s and we've never shied away from placing our stories and our ideas and our personhood into the songs. And we kind of leave it up to other people for as to how they interpret what we're saying. To us, the music is always important. We would not be having this conversation if we hadn't written albums that people like to listen to or sing along to. So certainly I would not deny a through line of feminism in terms of the choices we've made, the kind of people that we align with or don't align with. But for us, we put the music first. And what we try to do is just be authentic and 
authentically flawed is also part of, of being authentic, contradictory and, you know, just, yeah, all of it. So the mess of music, the mess of our lives, you know, that kind of chaos and volume that we like to kind of wrestle with, that's, that's what's important to us. And that's, I think, where we like to be considered ultimately is, is a band. What would you say about that? Yeah, I I think that's a great answer. I think that Mm -hmm. the idea of feminism in 2024 is for me, it's a lot about listening, you know, and understanding different women and non-binary people's stories. I think that's a great thing about music is that we hear other people's stories, right? We hear what they're going through on a daily basis. And we've been able to tell our story through music and let other people empathize with that a bit. And, you know, the opposite of that is being able to listen to other people's stories, understand what they're going through. How can we lift each other up? You know, I think that's a great thing about music is that it does let you hear and experience and feel someone else's story. That's the kind of gift of it. I was hoping that we could talk about the song Crusader. Sure. I think a lot of Little Rope is a contemplative, introverted album. There's the narrative feels very, you know, just heartfelt. And Crusader zooms out a little bit. It surveys the landscape. It, you know, examines the ways that people's lives and livelihoods are being trespassed upon. And it is sort of shocking that we're at this place where there are people who aim to legislate against another person's body or rights or ability to make decisions for themselves. Women, yes, but also transgender people and more broadly people in the LGBTQ community or trying to ban books that might mention race or slavery. You know, just fundamental uh, historical facts. People sort of trying to project and like insert a narrative that is essentially false, you know, because they are afraid of a narrative that is multidimensional and plural and a future that may include less of them and center less of them. So Crusader is just coming at those who aim to diminish, you know, aim to, uh, that's my dog barking in the background, but uh, yeah, Crusader is just about people kind of rising up and making themselves bigger in the face of that smallness that they're sort of asked to, instead of getting smaller, they sort of grow, grow larger to possess some kind of wonderful shimmery version of themselves.
I have Slater Kinney here with us on Shiro's. The new album is Little Rope. It's album 11, and that was Crusader, uh, one of my favorites. It's really hard to pick a favorite on this album, you guys. I usually highlight like, you know, three, maybe four songs, and I was like, oh, no, I'm going to highlight that and that and that. I love it so much. I don't know if I actually said that out loud, but this is one of my favorite Slater Kenny albums so far. Thank you. Is that Thank crazy? You. That's, that's, that's very great. nice. We really appreciate that. <laughs> there are so many new things about how you approach this album and a totally new set of circumstances as well, obviously. Can you set the scene a little bit for us and tell us about the writing sessions, where you were, some of the things that you changed up and what you learned from that? Yeah, I mean, I think that we really gave ourselves total freedom in the writing process to try any modality that worked. So sometimes that meant sitting in a room and jamming together, which is how we wrote Small Finds, one of the songs on the album. It's just, it doesn't make any sense unless the two guitars are playing together, but the chemistry makes that song work, I think. Or there would be songs like say it like you mean it, where I had an idea, I sent a demo to Carrie, all I really had was the chorus and a sort of mumbly idea for the verse. But, you know, she was like, let me try working on this song and, you know, would have a certain ideas for it. And I would try and write a vocal thing. So we sometimes we trade files back and forth. Sometimes we would just go to Carrie's house and listen to something and she'd be like, okay, I think this part is working. I don't think this part is working. What can we do here? And we just jam on it there in the room. So there were a lot of different ways that we tried to write this album, but we did spend a lot of time together writing it more than we have in recent years, I think. And you also had a whole space that nobody went to except to work. Yes, which was very fortunate. I think it reminds me of the very early days of Slater-Kinney. We have a unique provenance in that we formed in Olympia, Washington, but we flew to Australia soon after forming the band and wrote our self-titled album there. We sort of had to divorce ourselves from the context and see ourselves anew in order to kind of be able to imagine what Slater-Kinney could be. And there was something about this apartment that my friend has. He doesn't really live here anymore. He he keeps this apartment for friends and he rents it out sometimes, but it was empty in terms of tenants with very spare furnishings. So I just kind of set up shop there and Corin would come down and unlike our houses, this is an apartment on a higher floor. We could look out over the city and it just kind of gave us a different perspective, not just on Portland and the context in which we were writing, but on who we were as a band. You know, when you're looking out over a city, that's a different way of thinking of yourself than when you're staring at the same four walls you always look at or the same house across the street or your same backyard. Like it allows you to get sort of away, to be someone else, to write songs that you imagine reaching a farther place, a person you know, much different from yourself. It just, yeah, it's a way of kind of telescoping out. And I think that was very rare for us to write in a place that was both ours, but not ours. So what kinds of shifts in perspective did you gain? Not just from literal perspective that you got with that view, 
but also on each other and this next chapter of Slater Kinney? I think that we we were able to kind of open up on the strengths that we have in terms of what we are good at in terms of writing, what we think the strength of the band is with the guitars and really strong vocals. But, you know, we also were able to experiment a little bit with doing something that was not like something we had done before, you know, being able to try writing with a synth sound. And it opened things up a little bit, I think, on this record to play around with those ideas. It was just fun. We just (laughs) discovered sort of the joy of it. Like, it's just entertaining. It's rare to get to play music with the same person for so many years and still surprise one another. It's like for how painstaking writing can be. It's not just sitting in a room with some ineffable muse and letting the music come to you. But when we're done with it, it's almost like it does feel that transcendent or that otherworldly. And so I'll still listen to a song on this record or occasionally I've been lucky enough because some of the songs are getting played on the radio that I'll hear it. And I just think, how did we do that? And that's a great feeling to have. Like how, I don't know. I mean, sure, I could go back and and remember the gritty details of it, but there's also just part of it that is still very mysterious to me. And that mystery and the way that music asks more questions and art asks more questions and it does answers, that's how wondrous it is. That's why we keep doing it. So I think that discovery is always valuable as well. I love to hear it. And I especially love to hear it just knowing that it's still kind of rare to see women having really, really super long careers. And I just feel so strongly about that, that I really want to hear women's experiences, you know, not just in their 20s and their 30s, but into their 40s and their 50s and their 60s and their 70s. And it is a document of your life, but it's also the universal. So I appreciate so much that you keep going and that you're still discovering that joy in it and in each other. Well, thanks. We appreciate you. We appreciate being on the show. (laughs) Before we wrap up, I do a thing at the end of Shiro's. I hand my wand over to my guests and I ask them to imagine that with a wave of the wand, they can change anything in the music industry for women and non-binary folks, for genderqueer folks. What would you change? So we have two wishes because there's two of you here. So whoever wants to go first, what's your magic wand wish? This is Corin. I'll go first. And my magic wand wish is healthcare. I think that's an issue for all music creators, like, you know, having healthcare, figuring that out. And, you know, I think it's probably especially important for women and non-binary and genderqueer folks. So if I could change that, if I could make it easier, if I could get us all a guild policy, I would. Love it. Carrie? Yeah, I guess mine is similar in that it would just be changing the streaming structure so that artists could get paid for the music that they put out in the world so that with that money, they could buy whatever the hell they wanted, whether it's healthcare or something else, (laughs) or just pay their rent. Paying rent is good too. Love it. Thank you both for being here on Shiro's. Before we wrap it all up, 
Can you choose a song from Little Rope to go out with? Do you have a favorite? I will pick Six Mistakes. It's a really fun one to play and sing. We've been working on it, and I'm excited to go out and do that on tour. I stood outside your house last night. With thanks once again to Carrie Brownstein, Corin Tucker, Slater, Kenny. Yes, thank you for being here on Shiro. Thank Shiro's. you so much. Thanks for having us. Many thanks to Carrie Brownstein and Corin Tucker for joining us. Slater Kinney's new album, Little Rope, is out now on Loma Vista Recordings. Be sure to catch Slater Kinney on their 2024 tour, which kicks off on February 28th. She Rose is produced by me, is mixed and mastered by Kelly Drake. Our original theme music is by Lucius. She Rose is also a nationally syndicated radio show. You can visit SheRoseRadio.com to find out more and support our work with Patreon or merch from the She Rose shop. Keep in touch on Instagram and Twitter. I'm at Carmel Holt or find us at Shiro's Radio. And please consider leaving us a rating and review wherever you listen to your podcast. That helps us grow and bring you more Shiro's. Until next time, remember, music is our superpower. I'm Carmel Holt. Thanks for listening. <laughs>